Well, dear congregation, I want to ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you in your hearing. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, through to the end of chapter 6. We arrive in chapter 6, verse 1 this evening, and we find these words. In verse 1, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. And then Paul goes on to explain that they ought to be judging matters amongst themselves. If you recall, let's just put the, everything into context in this chapter. It's important, first of all, I must set this out that we remember that this epistle in the original never had chapter divisions. No such thing in the original. These were later put. Paul here is making a very clear connection what he has been dealing with in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, he has been severely admonishing the church at Corinth for its failure to deal with a most terrible, unspeakably wicked sin. Now, all sin is wicked, but what was taking place at Corinth was so shocking to Paul and to others, and even those who were not Christians. The fact that it was being tolerated in the church was unbelievable. A man had taken his father's wife. More than likely, it was his stepmother. And if you just go back to, or rather turn forward to 2 Corinthians 7, once again in the verse 12, I remind you, what's even worse about this situation is that his father is still alive. And uh, the father, no doubt, has been terribly hurt by this. It's more than likely a that this young man's mother has died, or there's been a divorce, and now the father marries again, and perhaps, we don't know for sure, maybe he's married a younger woman, and the son of this man has taken his father's wife. And we note it's even worse that the father is still alive. Second Corinthians seven twelve. Wherefore, he says, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done wrong, the wrong, that's the young man, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, that would mean the father, and that implies that he is still alive. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. The damage has already been done. The father has been hurt. The son has committed the sin. The son needs to repent, but he is only going to repent, and he, he does end up repenting when the church severely, severely not only admonishes him, but excommunicates him. And then after that repentance, they must receive him back. That's the right way. And here, in chapter 5, verse 6, you just go back to verse 6, the church had been glorying. They had been glorying in men's gifts, They'd been boasting in the church and the various preachers and the style and the ability and the eloquence of some of these preachers. But they'd taken their eye off the truth of holiness. They were boasting in the church's, what we would call, apparent success. But it was actually a disaster because the church is meant to be a place of holiness, a place of godliness. And Paul has to say, your glorying is not good. Not good at all. They ought to have judged. They ought to have judged within. Now we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is very clear on the matter of individual churches judging or dealing with sin that is taking place within a church. We just turn to Matthew chapter 18. That very familiar passage, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, 
that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if you shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. You've got to consider him, basically, he says, as an unbeliever. He's not one of you. He's not saved. He's not converted. If a person, no matter what the sin is, and it obviously is something serious enough that it's brought before a church, somebody could even be lying about a matter, a lie or a heretical doctrine. If it's not dealt with and the person doesn't hear the whole church, the gathered church, that person must be removed from the church membership. And then notice what he says in verse 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the church's decision, and Paul says to the Corinthians, you have the mind of Christ. We read that in the previous chapters. They have the Spirit of God. And Paul even says here, I judge, although I'm absent, but I'm present with you in the Spirit. You must consider that this has Christ's stamp of approval. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. The church has real authority. Now, the church had lost its course. Paul arrived at this church somewhere around AD 52 was there for some 18 months. The work was established. He left. Then very soon after that, things started to go terribly awry. And as I said, there was great concentration on eloquentness, eloquent speech, excellent speech, but really no concentration, no concern about holiness. And Apollos is with Paul here at Philippi at this present time. We know that at the end of this epistle. And he sends back a delegation of men that came to him bringing all the reports that there were these schisms, that there were these factions within the church. Some were of Paul, some of Apollos. There was this terrible party spirit. Instead of looking at what was going on, they were looking at men admiring men rather than looking inward within their own hearts as to how they were conducting their lives before a watching world. They glorified themselves in men, or they gloried in gifts in men, rather than failing to, uh, than, and they failed to discipline sin, rather. It also seems, if you remember in our studies, if you look at chapter 5, verse 7, and verse 8, they even allowed this man, he was permitted to be at the Lord's table, at the Lord's Supper. We call it the ordinance of the Supper because that is what we will learn in 1 Corinthians 11. It's called an ordinance. The Lord has left two ordinances for the church, and they are for believers. They are not for unbelievers. And they are for those who are belonging to the church. And as we will see, those who were baptized added to the church on that very day. We do not treat baptism and membership as separate issues. They are one thing that the believer does. He is baptized, and as he is, he joins the church, and he is welcome around the Lord's table. And we'll see that in all of our studies. The Bible is very, very clear that the ordinance of the Lord's table is for baptized believers in good standing. But it seems very clear from verse 7 and 8 of chapter 5 that this man was even permitted, can you believe it, to be at the table. Look at what Paul says, verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What on earth do you think? He's talking about what feast. There's only one feast for the church. It's the Lord's table where Christ is our Passover. He is the one who we remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. In light of what I've said, therefore, he says, 
Let us keep the feast not with old leaven or sin, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. That's what they were doing. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When they were gathering together, it was not good. The Lord's table really was a mockery because they were not dealing with sin that was known to everybody. It was a terrible situation. The Lord's table really was being terribly slighted because of this action or failure to act as well. Now, you notice as we move on, well, really at the end of chapter 5, Paul begins to use two phrases that really are quite common in the New Testament. The phrases within and without. Verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Chapter 5, verse 9. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then ye needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you, not to keep company if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? See, he starts to use these words. Without, do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, again he uses that word, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He says, you should be judging from within, within the body of Christ. He says, I don't have any business in judging people that are without. I'm not a court magistrate. This is not our work. This is the family. This is the household of God. Well, our Lord Jesus uses these terms without and within. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So we understand what is meant. Those who were without they're without salvation, they're without life, they're without a knowledge of Christ, they're without the forgiveness of sins. These terms are used very frequently to describe the saved and the lost. Those are, that are with it, within are saved, those without are without. You can even look in the book of the Revelation, the very last chapter. We read there in Revelation 14, 12, 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. They were without in this world and they will be without for all eternity. And we've got to bear this in mind. There's a difference as we come to chapter 6 between the lost and the saved. And now it's upon this portion here that the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, deals with another problem. Not only this man who they should have dealt with, but other matters that are taking place in the church. Unspeakable matters. And it's confirmed in chapter 6, verse 7, that there were those that were taking others to the courts, to the law courts, to the civil magistrates. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Well, for some it would have been a lot more convenient because if the matter would be dealt with in the church, the case they probably would have lost. And that's often the case, as we will think tonight. But that's not the prim principal reason why 
matters should have been dealt with within the church. But some people, because they can get a, a quick buck or they can sue somebody, and it might well prove that that person was reprobate anyway. They were never saved. That's not the spirit of a Christian. Paul here, he will say, look at verse 1, dare any of you, it's very strong language, isn't it? Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. He's not saying that a ruling mustn't take place over the matter. But he's saying this is how, and we will think why, Christians must deal with these things within the church and not take matters to the civil authorities when there is an issue in the church. Now, there are clearly some things, if somebody commits murder, you've got to leave that. It, it would be a crime of the church uh, to hide somebody's murder, somebody committed murder, and to not tell Indeed, the authorities. We have to obey the law of the land. But we'll de develop and think more on what Paul is actually saying here. What is he dealing with? He says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. And, and he will tell us here in this passage where... There are judgments, for instance, in verse 4, if then ye have judgments of these things pertaining to this life, set them to the judge. Things that pertain to this life, we will think about what they are. They are not matters of life and death. If you've committed somebody, a murder or something like that, we don't harbor murderers or somebody that commits some terrible sin of terrorism or something like that. No, that would be wrong. But there were those here in the church who were calling themselves Christians, taking each other to the law courts and suing their brethren. And this is completely wrong. They have a wrong spirit. They should know that within the church is righteous judgment, proper judgment. And uh, we'll deal with that tonight. And Paul says, I speak, verse 5, to your shame. It is so that there is, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that should be able to judge between his brethren, and so on. Now, the first thing we want to deal with this evening is an apparent misconception that needs to be addressed. Let me repeat that an apparent misconception that needs to be addressed. At a first glance, if you look at this chapter and what Paul is saying here, some think that Paul is speaking negatively about the authorities. He's not doing that at all. At first glance, it might even look like that, that he has no time for the local authorities, where he says, dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints, as if the entire state or nation is corrupt. And we must acknowledge that there are corrupt judges. There are corrupt magistrates. Of course, that's all over the world. But we have to trust that God is sovereign over all matters. And that's why we are commanded to pray for magistrates and rulers, that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. Well, some people took it this way, that Paul here was speaking out against magistrates and authorities. For instance, some of the Anabaptists took that view, and that was completely wrong. They didn't all take that view, but some of them strongly held to that view. But that's not the view of Scripture. If you just turn with me to Romans chapter 13, Paul is very clear on this. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, 
for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. You see what Paul says here? Every power is ordained of God. Don't resist those powers. Now there are times, of course, when the authorities command that we do something that goes against God's word. And the word of God is very, very clear on this. The Christian is not to submit to a law or to a principle that violates not only his conscience, but the word of God that is lord over his conscience. Uh, For instance, um, we think of when the Lord Jesus commanded even his disciples to go into all the world and to preach. And the apostles did, and they, they very quickly got arrested. Remember, by the Jewish authorities and by the Romans, and they got into all kinds of trouble, particularly the Jews really tried to put them in prison time and time again, and they did. And Peter resisted even those authorities. He says in Acts 5.28, well, that's the Jews, they say, did we straightly command you that ye should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. This is what the authorities are saying and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter said, and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now this is true in many instances that we find that the apostles did go against the law, but that was only when the law of the land was asking them to violate what God had clearly mandated them to do. But we are to obey the law, and this is why we should pray, according to 1 Timothy 2.1, where Paul says to young Timothy, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and of giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Pray for them. Pray for those who make those decisions and so on. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. But furthermore, the church, every church, while the state makes the laws and God ordains those leaders, the church still nonetheless has a solemn responsibility to live righteously before a nation. In fact, before the whole world as salt and light before this world. What did the Lord Jesus say? Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. And we're not to hide, and we're told that even our words should be, with grace, seasoned with salt. Sometimes what we say will not always be accepted. John the Baptist is a classic example. Remember how he rebuked even Herod for taking his brother's wife. And that got John into great difficulty. Got him thrown in the prison, didn't it? John the Baptist was just doing that. Telling it like it is. Telling the truth. He was concerned for his soul. And that man, Herod, was living before the nation. How terrible it is when a leader is living in such open and flagrant sin It usually follows that the nation follows in such sin. This is why we should also pray for those in authority. Because quite often they set the tenor of living in this world. Well, John the Baptist spoke out against Herod. We read in Mark 6.18, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. So not only Herod, and he was also put in prison by Herod, 
And then we know that this woman had a wicked plan. Now, obviously, John the Baptist had no civil authority, did he? But he did have that tremendous privilege to speak up and that responsibility to speak up. He had right of speech, and we do as Christians. But, of course, we've got to be very careful how we do anything. We don't do it self-righteously, and we speak out against all sin, not just some sins. Now, when it comes to the church, and we're dealing here in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, of church matters, where Paul is saying the state ought not to be investigating these things. These are matters that first and foremost need to be dealt with in the church. The ruling ought to be made in the church. Let me just say, sometimes even ungodly leaders see this. Let me give you an example. If you turn to Acts 18, a man by the name of Galileo is in the days of Paul, in fact, in the days here of Corinth, and uh, this man, Galileo, ruler and judge at the time of Paul, saw that even the state had no business in interfering with spiritual matters of the Jews and of the church of Jesus Christ. Even this ruler saw it. But I want you to notice the hypocrisy of this man at the same time. He saw something, but here's a lesson for us. Acts 18.11, and he, that is Paul, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Galileo was the deputy of Archaea, notice, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul. So the Jews rise up against the apostle Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, that's of Galileo saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. That's to the Jewish law. So really, the lesson here is that the Jews didn't like Paul preaching. They resisted him greatly. And so they brought him before Galileo. And we notice in verse 14, and when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, notice the words, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason, reason within your own mind, you should know, you should understand, would that I should bear with you. And then he says, but if it be a question of words and names and of your law, your law, you Jews, look ye to it. That's your business. That's not my business. For I will be no judge of such matters. And now notice, and he drave them from his judgment seat. So can you see the picture there? Galea says, no, this is, this is your business. I mean, even the unbelieving world can see this. It's quite striking, isn't it? He was right to make the distinction here between the powers of the state and what was the power of the church, or amongst the Jews? So we read, he drove, drove them away. But have a look. Don't take your eyes off this. This is a precious lesson. Look at verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. So... This is what the Greeks do. They don't like what they've done. They brought Paul here. And then we read this. And Galea cared for none of those things. Whereas he should have. But he didn't. Do you see the hypocrisy? He should have intervened at this point. But he didn't. And the lesson really is this, that the judges and the law courts of this world can be straight down the line where they want to be. But when it suits them, it's not always the case, my friends. We live in a wicked world. And sometimes, as I take you back 
to 1 Corinthians, the reason why, in some instances, not all cases, some of the professing, and I put them in brackets, quotation marks, Christians, took some to the law courts because they probably felt they'd get a better deal. Not that the church was dishonest, but many times they could bribe the judges because there's injustice in the world. But even, you see, if you're a Christian, as we will see, even if you believe that you might even be unjustly dealt with in the church for the sake of Christ, you mustn't shame the name of Christ. you rather be defrauded, he says. Rather be defrauded and live with it than drag that name of Jesus Christ in the mud before the watching world. You see, the Christian loves Christ. And he'll be prepared even to suffer loss for the sake of Jesus Christ in this world. There have been many cases, and I know even in my lifetime here in England, terrible cases where you hear of so-called professing Christians taking others to court. If a church finds out that one of its members has sinned, and lost his integrity, and that man has no right even now to hold his office, or should no longer even be called a member, wouldn't we say it would be ridiculous for that person to go to the law courts? He's not fit for office. He shouldn't be the minister. He shouldn't be in an office in the church. Would it be right to take the church to court because the man now has sour grapes? It's as ridiculous as a child taking its parent to court for sending it to bed early during the week because the child has been naughty. What would the magistrate say? should say, don't be silly. You should listen to your parents. You wouldn't expect children to sue their parents, would you? for sending them to bed early. But nowadays, children sue their parents for smacking them. We live in a wicked world, my friends, where the state is interfering with the church, but that ought never to be the case, and we ought never to introduce such uh, a practice. This is wrong, isn't it? And let me say this, I do not see anywhere in the Scripture where we see church courts the church, as we will see, is to deal with things, we believe, in the complete autonomy and independency of the local church. That is without equivocation in the Scriptures. We do not ever see in the Scriptures, and I will show you some texts that are often misunderstood about church polity, proper church polity. You never see a synod or some sort of oligarchy in the New Testament. You never see a meeting of churches to deal with things. Now, many people, if you just turn to Acts 15, mistake what actually takes place here because they get the context all wrong. In Acts 15, the early church, we should say the apostles, it was the apostles, and remember that the apostles are the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ are the foundation of the church, and that we must never forget. Acts 15 is not a synod of churches. They were at Jerusalem, and it was the apostles that met together with some of the elders, and others were there because there was a crisis. There were some of the Judaizers that had come from the north, and they were telling Christians, for you to be a full-blown Christian, you need to be circumcised as well. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. You're not truly right with God. And this crisis had to be dealt with. And it was. The apostles met together, 
This is the early church, and remember the apostles here at Jerusalem. This is the church where they gathered. Knew that this was wrong. And they, they gathered together with the elders, and they confronted these men from the north who came down, who were corrupting the minds of these early believers and bringing them under a yoke again, a bondage under the law to be circumcised. If you look in verse 7, And when there had been much disputing, Acts fifteen seven, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? You put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Now notice what he says. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be saved even as they. Saying Jews and Gentiles, we're saved by grace. No circumcision. And so it was confirmed. And again, this was not a consortium of churches. It was not a synod. It, it was not some sort of presbytery of overseers from various churches. No, these are the apostles, the founding members. We're told, are we not, in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, Ye are fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The early church is establishing things. And the church does not need to, or churches do not need to gather as a synod to debate matters that are settled. These are issues that have been settled. You, you, the building that we're in, you don't put another foundation on it. You'd have to demolish all the bricks. You don't lay another foundation. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And here's the teaching. It's settled. Denominations are not found in the New Testament whatsoever. Now, I am a Baptist by conviction, not by denomination. Not because others are Baptists. I like to say this, it's true. John was a Baptist, so was his master, so am I. You can trace the Baptists right to men like Polycarp, who knew John. And there's not an instance, Polycarp does not speak of infant baptism. You can look at the early church fathers. No infant baptism on that day of Pentecost. We read that over 3,000 souls were baptized. Who were they? We're told they that gladly received the word of God were baptized. And that completely rules out children of believers. And what they like to do, many who like to quote those words, they quote half a verse, Acts 2.39. For the promise, says Peter, is unto you and to your children, he's speaking to the Jews, and to all that are afar off, the Gentiles. Now notice the qualifying words. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's according to the calling of God. The calling is according to election. We're not saved by family. We're not saved even by race. But we're saved by grace. Again, let me repeat it. There are no denominations in the New Testament. People were baptized. We use the name Baptist because we baptize people. But church denominations are a novelty. And they are dangerous. Because you then must comport to man's teaching. The church must be an independent, autonomous body 
that is completely accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, what do you read? Christ doesn't say to those seven churches now, once you do all get together as a presbytery and to deal with these issues. He writes to those individual churches and they have to deal with those issues. It's the same here at Corinth. And sometimes it can be very dangerous when another church is involved, and I've seen it, my years of us belonging to a denomination, we no longer do, and men jump in and they don't know the details. They don't see the lives of individuals. But in the church, you see, the church, he says, does it not to the Corinthians, when you gather together, he doesn't say when the others come in from outside, gather together, you make a decision with them. He says, you gather together and you make these decisions. Or you make this decision, you rule. And that is so vital. It's very clear that it is the local church and not a synod or a grouping of different churches, denominations. Again, are not found in Scripture. I was going over my church history again this afternoon and reading men such as James Milton and Edward Carroll, these men who can trace back what we call credo baptism, believer's baptism, right back to Polycarp and a faithful line all the way through to the Waldoseans and so on, all these men, um, the Novationists, the Donatists, the Paulicans, the Cathars, the Waldesinians, the Petrobrusians, the Arnodists, all these people. You can trace there has been a clear line of those who have baptized believers. And those are the only ones that should belong to the church because would you really want somebody to judge on spiritual matters that is unregenerate? And if you follow the Old Testament teaching that everybody is in the church because they belong to, well, they're children of believers, well, then they should be at the Lord's table too because they all ate the Passover lamb together. But it's not the case. They all ate the Passover lamb together. But what does Paul say? What does Paul say? Even in Hebrews 13, they that partake of that tabernacle have no part at this altar whatsoever. And here he's speaking about the altar of Christ. If you're interested in Baptist church archaeology, in 1903, Clement F. Rogers published Baptism and Christian Archaeology. It's a study of the archaeological evidence, both of the positive evidence that paintings and carvings that were found in Rome even conferred the baptisms, and the word baptism means to be immersed, of those early believers. There were paintings in the ancient catacombs of believers of Rome, and of course you know Many of them suffered great things, and those were in the catacombs for the first three centuries, even before the Roman Catholic Church got started, sadly. Well, enough time. Back to the text here. Look at verse, as we move on, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust? I've already shown you that the unjust can be very unjust, can't he? Look at Galea. When it suited him, it's not to say, though, there are clearly some matters where we have to take things. We, if something terrible has taken place, and it would be a sin to hide it from the state. For instance, a murder has taken place. Heaven forbid that should ever happen. But we must let justice prevail. And the one who dies as a Christian, saved, forgiven, he goes to be with the Lord. 
But then notice what he says. Know ye not that we will judge angels? He says before that, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's saying these, these issues. They were taking petty things even to the courts and bringing the name of Christ into disrepute. Look at these Christians suing each other. Making, bringing all their do- dirty laundry out for the world to see. Terrible, isn't it? Should never be the case. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. You see, because we love Christ, and because we trust his wisdom is in the church, we should never bring things like they were doing out before the public. Shameful. And it makes us to think, how do we live in this world? You know, there are we should avoid all, you've heard it, all appearance of evil. But they were failing to do this. It's amazing what people will do for money. All because they're bitter about things and they can't forgive one another. So they bring the church into great disrepute and shame. Rather suffer loss, Paul begins to say. He says in verse 7, now therefore... There is utterly a fault among you. It it was taking place because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Better to suffer wrong. Consider him, Christian. And sometimes, you know, even if, if that person is a true brother in the church, suffer wrong, the truth will come forth one day, won't it? That man will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even if the church rules wrong, you suffer. You bear those reproaches for Christ's sake. Paul says, does he not? Christ who even pleased not himself, who bore our reproaches, they fell on him. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud. That's what they were doing. They were defrauding. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren... That makes it even worse. I mean, it's terrible to defraud anybody, but to defraud a Christian. And what's more, you never get away with it. You'll be before God. And he leads to that. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That man, if he never repents, it'll prove even though he may even stay in the church. And I would like to think that everybody in the church is saved. But you know, even Judas had many fooled. There's no guarantee. We would like to think our members are all regenerate. But remember this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, he sued you. He's even maybe been, got the upper hand in the church. But God's not fooled. He says, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. See, the thief is included in here as well as the drunkard. You could steal somebody's reputation by lying about them. You you can steal in many ways. Nor revilers, nor extortionists shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And if they... Have the Spirit of God. 
they should leave these matters within the church for the church to sort out. For the sake of that blessed name that we would never want men to say, is this how God's people behave? It ought never to be the case. Friends, how can we be light in the world if we entertain sin or if we traverse in the, in the church in deceitful ways? Therefore, let me close with this. I, as well as you, need to watch and pray against all temptation. We hear of men who we never would have thought would have done things. They have. Well-taught men in the Word of God, and they've done terrible things. It's the heart, you see, that is desperately wicked, who can know it. And so therefore, let me say this. If somebody corrects you, or me, be very quick to hear very quick to hear and to repent if we have been wronged. The church is to be a place of holiness for Christ's sake. He has said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And you remember this. Many will get away with their sin, even in this life. But there's a day when we will all stand before the Lord in judgment and give an account of our lives. If we've been saved, we will endure. We will even suffer loss for the sake of Christ. We will even say, well, okay, I know I'm right in this matter. But I'm going to leave it. Because I love my Lord who bled for me. And died for me. I never want to bring his shame into this world. And you think of it. He was dragged outside of Jerusalem. Face bloodied, his back bloodied. For what? For your sin. And my sin. Should we not endure all things for Christ? Paul was defamed. So were all of the apostles. But you know, there's some people who stand on their own self-righteous ground. And they'll even be prepared sometimes to lie about others. But there'll be no hiding on that day when we stand before the Lord. It ought to be the love of Christ, my friends that constrains us. If you love him, you'll endure all things for his sake and for the sake of the elect. And you know, sometimes I tell you, I've seen it. I've seen people in the church many years ago really badly treated. But they never reviled. And those are the men I remember. Those are the people that stand out in the memory of my mind. Make me think, oh, I want to be like that. Because that's what my Savior was like. Amen.